A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, welcome to the Times Opinion Podcast. I'm Philip Webster. I'm editor of the Red Box Morning Bulletin. Joining me in the studio today, we have Rachel Sylvester, Hugo Rifkind and Libby Purvis. The first voice you will hear is Rachel Sylvester. David Cameron once said his party had to stop banging on about Europe, but now the rest of his premiership is going to be defined by a referendum on Britain's relationship with the EU. The polls are narrowing and ministers who want to stay in are increasingly worried that people will vote to leave. The SA crisis prime minister got the grades he needs in the referendums on AV in Scotland and in the general election, but is complacency now going to make him fail the biggest test? The fear of radicalisation into actual violence is reasonable and so is public political correctness, which is basically just politeness. But they are both leading us too far down a dangerous path. Hate speech laws have not helped. We need to accept that as long as you don't incite or perform violence or discrimination, you can believe what you like and insult other people's behaviour and beliefs. That's a British value, if anything is. There is a void in British politics in the shape of climate change. Nobody cares. David Cameron never talks about it anymore. Jeremy Corbyn wants to reopen coal mines. Even the Green Party would rather talk about austerity. Somehow, David Cameron has just accidentally signed what some hail as the greatest Green Agreement of all time, and there's no sense he had anything to do with it whatsoever. Why don't we care? Right, let's kick off with uh, Europe. And uh, it's not been a great week or so for, for David Cameron. He's getting slammed all over the place for dithering on Heathrow. And Rachel Sylvester has written a pretty coruscating column in The Times this week suggesting that um, he's not really prepared himself for this one either and this one really matters, which is a deal on Europe. So, Rachel, is he going to win it? Well, I spoke to um, a Tory MP yesterday who said the trouble is he's managed to annoy everyone. So he's already irritated the Eurosceptics by not giving them enough of what they want on the sort of anti EU side. But now he's also managed to irritate the pro-Europeans by telling them to shut up and sort of stop saying anything to try and make the positive case for Europe. So he's in danger of of sort of not having really thought this through. So he's embarked on a kind of slightly phony renegotiation of Britain's relationship where he's talking up all the great things that he's hoping to get. And it's now narrowed down to just sort of four fairly minimal points, one of which he he might not get anyway. So it, uh, then then he's going to sort of hold a referendum which he's not really prepared the ground for. And I spoke to a minister yesterday who who's a sort of pro-European minister who said it's it is the sort of essay prime minister at his worst. So he mm. he managed to get through his GCSEs, he got through the A levels, <laughs> and now he's going to flunk the degree. And he's just not not kind of prepared. And instead of learning from the mistakes of Scotland and um, the general election where they sort of slightly winged it and kind of 
felt they got away with it. He's not learnt um, the lessons of history. He's trying to rewrite history. And, this and minister the suggestions said. are that he seems to have upset his allies on the way in Europe as well. That he suddenly changed tack over the last week or so and started pushing for something that they thought had been sort of dealt with, but he wanted more. And uh, he seems to have upset some of the people who really do matter to him. Yes, I think it was Laurent Fabius, the French foreign Mm. minister, who said you can't sort of start off playing football and then suddenly say you want to play by the rules of rugby. And it's as if they feel he's trying to sort of change the rules of the game halfway through. That He's sort of in danger of making you know, enemies of his potential friends and allies. But meanwhile, the the opinion polls are, are narrowing and there's mm. a couple this, uh, earlier in the week where um, the sort of outside is certainly gaining ground and that, that's where the momentum is. And I think it's, it, you know, th- a lot of people who are feeling this was a referendum that Cameron who doesn't really want to leave, would win, are now wondering whether, you know, now saying it's too close to call and it could be, you know, his legacy could be the man who takes Britain out. Yeah, do you, Hugo, do you get a sense it's 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 going a bit pear-shaped, this whole thing? Yes, I mean, inevitably, his, his big problem is that he, I mean, you know, one probably should use softer language, but his whole position is predicated on, on, on two lies. One lie being that there was a renegotiation that could make any difference to what the British public thought, and the second being that he was going to get it. And he and he knew this was rubbish when he started saying it a year and a half ago, but it was just the easiest thing to do. The, the only thing that makes me inclined to be a bit more generous to him is I'm not sure what he ought to be doing instead. I'm not quite sure what's... With, a, with this long run-up into a... Rep- once you've conceded a referendum, once you've said when it's going to happen, I'm not quite sure when there's basically nothing he can do that's going to affect the ground really in any way. I'm not quite sure what would be a better thing for him to spend a year and a half effectively treading water, waiting, waiting for people to get interested. The granting of the referendum itself was a bit of the SA crisis, Prime Minister, wasn't it? And, and it, there is quite a history of that, I think, with, um, with David Cameron, well, where he, he, he makes an announcement and then spends the next few years trying to clear up after it. I mean, well, especially when it comes to sort of dealing with his party's right-wingers, who he's never, who've never liked him, he's never really felt comfortable with. And Ken Clark has this great line, it's, it's like feeding crocodiles buns. You, know, you give them one, then you give them another, and then you give them the whole packet, and then they're still coming back for more, and then they go- they'll gobble you up in the end. Yeah. And that's what they're like, really, the Eurosceptics with Cameron. He sort of gave them sort of a pretty big bun with the referenda, but they want more and they're taking his hand off. Yeah. Libby, what do you think? Well, I love the essay crisis metaphor, but I actually, I think that Hugo's right in saying what on earth can he do? Because, yes, it is narrowing. It's sort of palpably narrowing, even apart from the surveys and the polls among people you talk to. I think two things will have an enormous effect close to referendum date. One will be whether there is a flurry of reports of foreign criminals, of East European criminality. Mm -hmm. That is one of the things which upsets people very, very much indeed, the begging and the criminality of some East European um, EU members. And the other will be what business says. The more business keeps on saying, actually, we can do without it. Actually, you know, we we quite enjoy just trade with other places like China. You know, uh, if business says it's okay and jobs are not at risk... Uh, then I think that will have an enormous uh, an enormous out effect. No. And I think this will just go on and on. And so it's what's going to be in the news and what the statements are going to be yeah. near to referendum date. Loads of people simply do not want to think about it yet because mm-hmm. it's a year and a half ahead yes. and we've got Christmas. Yes, he sort of <laughs> relied then, on business. Well, there uh, is, I think, one big error that Downing Street did make was they told business 
to not start making the case. They deliberately said, oh, yes. please keep quiet. Yeah. Last summer, yeah. they yeah. rang up uh, um, lots of businesses and said, please, look, don't start talking about Europe. Don't start making the positive case. We don't want... Why? Why? Be- Why because they that? thought it would then be seen as a, the positive side was the kind of elite which, business <gasps> establishment figures. Which was, a, which was a palpable thing with Scotland, actually, yeah. which really, really did happen. The more, the, more, the more banks came out and big business came out and said, we, ha- we have to stay in the union, the more people were like, well, this is what the union means. Right. The union means, you know, max capitalism means being dominated by a wealthy elite, means all this yeah, kind of stuff. Yeah, it worked, didn't it? Well, but it, but it just worked, you know. In, in, in I mean, it did work, but it narrowly worked. Ten percent, ten percent, not but it, bad. It, but it, it, it worked because the case was very strong. Now, I happen to believe the case is also going to be very strong with Europe. But if it's not, then it's not going to work. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah. what Cameron's mistake, I think, has been is not to start let anyone start preparing the ground in any yeah. way. So he's always talking about rolling the pitch on other things, public yeah. service reforms. But on this one, it's like he's sort of digging up the pitch and making it more and more complicated and emphasising all the negatives, all the sort of benefit fraud, all the anti-EU mm-hmm. stuff in order to try and get concessions. But as a result, nobody's actually prepared the ground for, with public opinion for actually this staying in might be a good thing. Yeah, but this is another much bi- uh, even bigger question, which is to say, if he does lose it, what's going to happen then? Does he does he resign immediately, and does the and does the Tory party stay together? Well, I mean, I, mean if, I would say if he loses it, that's the least of our problems. I mean, <laughs> what actually happens to David Cameron is uh, it concerns me far less than what happens to poor benighted mm-hmm. Britain. Or I, England, because Scotland will. Well, Scot- Scot- go Scot- off, Scotland will be gone. Yeah, um, as, as soon as, as soon be as out possible. For a bit, though, won't they? Yes. Uh, yeah, I don't see how he would stay on after. I mean, unless he stays on in an apologetic, let's see how we can make this work type way. But I mean, I, I don't think it'll happen. I don't. Th- I mean, I, I you know, I don't think we will leave Europe. I think. Um, one of the most striking things is the increasing absence of UKIP from the debate. You know, the, the, the remarkable extent to which UKIP has managed to toxify the very thing they most stand for, that people now think leaving Europe is a bit UKIP-y. Which is, though, why I imagine they are staying oh, absolutely. away I, from I the I still front, think though. it's really close. I think you move away from London, move away from the London bubble, I think mm-hmm. you'll find an awful lot of out. That might recede once the case is made that the, the the industry on which they rely, probably more so than London, because London at least has the city, is very, very closely entwined with our membership of the EU. That's what I'm saying. It's a matter of what business says. Yeah. Mm. But also, if there are a lot of reports of immigration and criminality linked, you know, with East Europeans, with Romanians, mm. there's no point pretending that that doesn't affect people because it does. It scares people. Mm. What, what, what do you think, Rachel, if, if, uh, if it was a no, does the Tory party hold together? Do, does the pro-European side of the Tory party go off and look for pro- progressive friends in, uh, elsewhere? They'll go and live in Germany. I suppose in one way, if it is resolved clearly one way or another, then, then that great schism is, is over, for better or for worse. I think the, the more tricky thing for the Tory party is if it's a staying-in vote but a slightly indecisive staying-in vote with the with the outers unreconciled to that within the Tory party. If I may, I think schisms are never over. Nobody goes, oh well, fine. You know, that's that. I'll just <laughs> I'll just not talk about this anymore. You know, if if we if we stay in the outers, the outers are set back for six months and then find some pretext to to go again. If we if we go out, the inners are tireless until we get another referendum about going back in again. That's just what happens. No, mm. Nobody ever loses in politics. Everyone keeps on fighting. Well, I somehow think we're going to be coming back to this one um, in 2016 <laughs> on quite a few occasions. So let's um, move on to our second item. And Libby Purvis uh, wrote a recent piece in the Times saying let the bigots have their say. 
I was taught as a child, a Catholic child, often mocked by, by non-Catholics for being a little convent girl, as I then was, that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And I take utter freedom of speech as a given. But of course it isn't. We've got into this fog of confusion where you can be convicted for being vocally anti-religious or for being too religious or just for being frankly rude. Uh, we've got this sort of nervous defeatist sense that things would be better if we all felt the same way and were nice. So we've got university students no-platforming people they disagree mm. with and people expressing horror at believers even people with no power at all saying that homosexuality and abortion are sins against God so Tyson Fury says so what he's a boxer he gets hit in the face a lot we have to just brace up because it is not illegal to have archaic and unmodern views about sex and behaviour it is not illegal to observe arcane dietary laws and to consider unclean those who don't have those laws as long as you treat them fairly in law it is not even illegal to tell your minor children your beliefs, however batty they are, as long as you don't abuse them, mutilate them, starve them or force them into marriage or prevent them from access to views in mainstream education. We've really got to be brave enough to accept that a really core British value is allowing the talking of bigoted nonsense. But your sort of bottom line is is incitement, isn't it, or actual harm? Well, of course it is. Yeah. And I mean, but there are there have been laws against that forever. Yeah. You know, it's uh, as long as you're not asking people to harm other people, you can say they are unclean, dirty, kuffar, or filthy Christians, or nasty Muslims who believe nonsense. You can say that. It's allowed. It's... We if, unless you're going to, if you're going to change the law, let's have an enormous debate on this and say everybody must never speak their inward mind. But religion is religion. It's very close in people's heads. And if somebody sort of says homosexuality is, is a terrible, filthy and dirty thing, I don't believe that. Absolutely not. The opposite. But I defend their right to think so and to say so. I, I don't think you can put a lid down on things like this. Hugo? Well, I think, um, I mean, what a lot of this is about what we've done is we've blurred the line between violent assault and rhetorical assault there's a widespread particularly if you look at what happens what's happening on, on university campuses there's a widespread belief mm. that if you say something nasty about a group what you are doing is inciting people to assault that group in the physical sense i think that's rubbish uh frankly it's not always rubbish but as a general rule rubbish i don't think criticism i don't think most people hear some sort of critique of a minority lifestyle and think i'll go and beat them up i don't think that i don't, I don't think there's some, a link some there. of course do but then you have to come down extremely hard on them you have to come yeah. down extremely mm. hard on any form of violence but words you, we must allow the words to, well, to, to flow freely I mean I think I mean I think part of it what's interests me is is where this comes from and the the temptation is always to think that where, where this comes from is a, a narrowing of debates an idea that, that there are things that, that can't be said that, that aren't said that we're saying less than we used to say in fact I think a lot of this stuff comes from the fact that we have so many loud voices today, so much media across which we can sprawl and which we're exposed to, there are so many voices saying so many things and people are trying to shield themselves off for it, off from it. So like the, the university safe space idea, which is so sort of endemic mm. these days, where, where you know they try and ban so-and-so from coming to speak and being exposed to challenging ideas. I think that is a function of them being exposed to actually quite challenging ideas a lot of the time on through social media, through media they can't... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
control through international media and trying to create a little bit of the world that they can live in as a bubble. But this is this is a wrong thing for people at universities to try and do. When I first arrived at university, I was still a believing Catholic. I'm now a, a largely mm-hmm. kind of kind of escaped Catholic. But I came in touch with people who thought that everything I had been brought up to believe was absolutely wrong and toxic oh, and, and dangerous and evil and all the rest of it. And that was great that I had to meet but, these people because then I had to consider why I still believed some of the that, things I did. But that's because the world you were coming from was a, a conservative, protective world because society at large was at that point. And so you go to university and university is a, is a liberal world where every idea is open. Look, I agree with where you're coming from here, but I think we need to sort of... We need to acknowledge that for certainly people at university, actually that situation is now reversed. The world at large is is noisy and liberal and and cacophonous. But when you and, get and so, so they want to create their conservative safe spaces away as a reaction outside, against that. Outside universities, I mean, okay, there wasn't actually a charge, but three senior Welsh police officers had to investigate the fact that Anne Robinson said she thought the Welsh she didn't like mm. the Welsh much, even though she said they were actually cleverer than us and could sing better. You know, and even so, potential hate speech. Uh, there's a man in Bournemouth who got a suspended sentence uh, just for holding up a sign saying "Stop homosexuality, stop lesbianism, Jesus." is Lord. You know, that's all it said. Mm-hmm. He got convicted. We really have to fight I, against this. I, I so, Rachel, is there just too much legislation in this area? Because we think we're going to get more, don't we? Mm. Well, I think what's interesting, I totally agree with you, Libby, on free speech. What I think is the difficult area which politicians are grappling with, and rightly, is where this meets up with Islamism. So, where you've got ideas, you've got, if you like, a, um, a set of ideas out of which violent extremism is growing and I think it's then very difficult to know why is it that schoolgirls in their bedrooms in hamlets are ending up going to Syria Mm. on the basis presumably of what people have said you know they haven't actually been subjected to any sort of violence presumably there's been incitement in that I mean Michael Gove again I'm talking about crocodiles a lot but he talked about draining the swamp as well as shooting the crocodiles as they come towards the boat rather than feeding them buns but there's a there's a sort of inviting someone on social media or indeed in in a school and as I say I have kind of exempted schools who have to have the mainstream education as well Mm. inviting someone on social media to go to meet to Syria to fight that is incitement to violence right you know whereas just saying uh, all non-Muslims are a bit filthy is not incitement to violence it's rude but it's uh, it, that that's that's the dividing line and we have to be absolutely mm-hmm. clear that there's a dividing line you don't raise a finger against anybody but you can think what you like about them mm. going slightly off the subject but the stop the war coalition suggesting that we're all reaping a whirlwind uh, after the paris attacks coming out with that statement and um corbyn being told he had to disown the stop the war coalition before that is that the kind of thing that you think should can be said without um, without inciting people to. Um, well, he, he was. If you're saying we're reaping the whirlwind, you're just saying it's basically our fault. You're not saying fight back. If they said we're reaping the whirlwind and actually let's all go to Syria, uh, then that would be different. No, I think that kind of statement has to be argued with. You mm-hmm. have to have open mm-hmm. argument. And one of the big problems about outlawing certain expressions is you don't get the open argument. You know, if the 
allegedly Reverend Stephen Green goes around saying that, that all homosexual activity is wrong and unnatural and sinful. It's necessary that he should be here to say it so that the yeah. rest of us can stand up and say, actually, mm-hmm. no, because this, because this, because this. OK, that's the um, second item. Let's deal with Hugo's. 195 people have signed, uh, countries have signed up to this uh, great accord in Paris. It's been hailed as one of the greatest... Um, yep deals of all time. It didn't make too many front pages though, did it? Well, there's no sense that it's got anything to do with us. I mean, Britain is becoming on climate change, Britain is becoming provincial. It's the only word for it. We have this strange politics around climate change that gives far too much oxygen and attention to a, a fringe of cranks who are who are sceptical about it. And it's really, it's gone deep in our politics. David Cameron, you know, started off when he when he when he when he ran for the leadership, even once he once he was prime minister, briefly, mm. he was all about the wind farms and the turbines and the he had one on his roof, didn't he? Not a mention. Even even having secured this great sort of world leading agreement, he hasn't come home shouting about it. This is a man who's trying to, of course, you know, trying to negotiate with 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 the rest of Europe on about Europe. You'd think he'd want to say, hey, look what I can do. But he, of course, he hasn't had anything to do with it. There's no political cost to that because we have a Labour Party. I mean, does Jeremy Corbyn believe that the, that human, humans are making the world warmer? I'm not sure. He wants to reopen coal mines. Mm-hmm. His brother, of course, is a, is a not- notorious climate sceptic. Not that necessarily yeah. accounts for much, but it's not something he talks about loudly. Even the Greens these days don't really talk about green stuff anymore. There's, there's almost no place for it in our politics. And you could understand that if the debate globally had moved on enormously from where it was a few years ago where everyone was terribly concerned about this. It hasn't. If anything, people are more concerned. I mean, as it happens, the the, the Paris agreements, I'm, I'm perhaps more sceptical about than many. I think they're, they, they sound very nice. I don't really necessarily believe they're going to lead to much. But the fact is that the rest of the world is incredibly concerned about this. China is concerned about this. America is concerned about this. Why the hell aren't we? <laughs> is, it, is there an element there where the, the public may see this happening they see the floods they see everything but they don't actually think that whatever these conferences come up with they don't actually think anything can be done about it is 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 that a part of the uh, i mean the, it, the cynicism around the the whole issue it may be but that's a symptom not a cause because i mean to be blunt what the hell do the public know this is science this then this this, yeah. this, this this isn't easy science <laughs> it it may actually be one of these times where it comes and bites us that actually we're a small country and actually it matters far less what we say or do about this and it matters what India does. More sort of more damningly than that, I think it says something about the the sort of short termist adversarial nature of our politics. That really something big and, and, and near existential, we just have no language for it. Yeah. yeah. I Rachel. Think, I think there's um there's been a deliberate shift, especially in the Tory party. Obviously it was you know, Cameron's gone from hugging husky huskies to it's all green crap and everything, get rid of mm. that. But I think it's deliberate and I think they decided after the economic crash that greenery environmentalism was a luxury mm. and that if you like people didn't care about it as much and they talk a lot about Maslow's hierarchy of needs which is this sort of pyramid drawn by the um, Abraham Maslow in the 1940s um, where at the bottom you have sort of security very basic safety for your family then you have wealth then you have sort of more lifestyle things health education and at the top is kind of concerns like environmentalism or mm. you know yeah. things things to do with your family but you know um holidays or whatever and they put green issues right at the very top of that hierarchy of needs yeah. and it's seen as a luxury 
Whereas actually what you're saying, Hugo, is it's a basic necessity. It's about yes. security. Mm. But the way in which the political class sees it as it's about sort of polar bears and yeah. rainforests and frippery and, rather than survival. And it, and it leads us into nonsense. I mean, if you, you look at what was just agreed in, in Paris, we've just agreed in Paris that half of new cars within 15 years are going to be electric. What the hell? That's not going to happen. Who, who alive th- thinks that's going to happen? Yeah, it's been agreed, it's been signed up to. It's a commitment, a voluntary commitment, but still a commitment. Uh, Cameron came home, wasn't quizzed on it. Nobody's standing up in the Commons saying, hang on, what do you mean? You know, I mean, Ed, Ed Miliband went on TV to talk about climate change. Corbyn hasn't. Yeah. I think that the psychology of it is actually easy peasy. We, we do know that we are a small country, plus we are a temperate oceanic climate, and therefore it is quite, you know, we're sitting here in December mm-hmm. and, and it's really warm, you know, but it could be really cold and, and we, you never know what's going to happen. So I think the British inclination to feel strongly about climate change is, is difficult to, to yeah. get at. We also got the fact that some of our extreme environmental speakers are really, really annoying. I mean, I know people who cannot watch George Mombio on you know, who leap at the radio or the television say get take him away but I, I think one of the mistakes which has been made is that it is not connected in people's minds enough with the actual pollution and filth that you see from heavy industry unrestrained I think that people do care about and I also think people care about things like food and sustainability you know those arguments and yet those get get muddled and and muddied I mean you, you'll get this sort of nobody must eat meat anymore I was listening on the early morning radio the other day to uh, a suggestion that from the sustainability body that actually moving away from grassland and livestock rearing was worse for sustainability and for the planet than growing endless crops and turning everybody vegetarian and vegan you know that that if you talked about sustainability and food and pollution i think people would be far far more engaged mm, with it and yeah. if you talk about climate change because the daily experience you know and i'm saying this is for the non-scientific mm. the daily experience is our climate changes on a daily well, basis it, an yeah. hourly basis yeah. we yeah. never know where we are isn't term threatening except, enough does except it? sustainability i mean is well important is a, is a very different matter this is this is the simple business of putting carbon, enough carbon dioxide into the atmosphere to change the temperature of the planet, there is pollution is not is not irrelevant in this. I mean, well, if, it, it, if, you, it's, it's, if you point out the filth, the filth of, of car exhausts and the filth of the, the filth of industry, people will listen to you the, the, much more than if you go on and on about some gas that the, they're the, bored no, with. They, they will listen to you, but you'll be having a different conversation. As with the diesel thing, you know, we all went to diesel because because diesel was lower in CO two, but it's killing us. You know, the, the CO two thing is very specific. It's it, it, it's it's a gas that goes into the atmosphere that warms our planet up. Everybody knows this happens. The, the, even the, even the sceptical argument advanced by some esteemed people in our newspaper these days now says, yeah, it's happening, but it'll be fine. You know, that's a major shift from five or six years ago where they were like, no, it's rubbish, mankind can't do anything like this. You know, thing- just yeah. one, one second. You're absolutely right that on both sides this debate is dominated by cranks in Britain. Mm-hmm. But that's a, that's a symptom of what I'm talking about. It, everywhere else in the world, it's mainstream politics. Look at Germany. Look at this massive sort of sustainable energy thing they're rolling out across the north of the country. It's, it's bang in the, the centre of politics almost everywhere else in the world. I think the other thing which is not talked about enough, except by one or two people in this newspaper, is 
okay, if it is going to happen, to some degree it is going to happen, let us consider how to reduce the ill effects of it and to use any good effects of it. Let us consider how to help low-lying islands. Let us consider Bangladesh. Let us plan on how to help if it's going to happen, rather than sitting there making, as you say, these slightly ridiculous sort of yeah. vows about electric cars, well, which aren't going to change much. I mean, the, the, the IPCC is, in fact, quite good on... I mean, the, the, the last report, part two, mitigation, is what you want to read for that. And that, that's all about precisely, you know, given the best-case scenario is still quite bad, th- these are the steps we take. These are how we protect low-lying, low-lying islands. These are how we protect food supplies, so on, etc. You know, these are how we how we cope with increased flooding in places like Bangladesh and Cumbria. So, I mean, I mean, the, the, there are things being done with that. Again, it's, it's just absent from our politics. One interesting thing, though, is it's not absent from our schools. Mm. I don't know about your children, but, the you know, my son the other day is worried about having a peanut butter sandwich because he's worried about the palm oil and the rainforest being cut down. So they, they get a lot of it at school, and the, I think the curriculum is very heavy on climate well, change. Well, it's quite hopeful. Um, you know, they're always yeah. going around turning off lights or yeah. saying... I tell you... I, so actually, I think the younger generation mm, may be more interested. I don't want to upset you here, but they go around turning off lights for about one year. <laughs> After that, they leave them on. And what is more, they endlessly stream stuff to their iPads and so on. And the... the the the, CO, the CO2 effect, yes, of st- stre- streaming and using digital radio and, you know, downloading a programme rather than and watching it on live bad, television is, is environmentally very, very bad. This is one of the things the BBC never mentions mm. because yeah. it's so keen on the streaming. But the cost of warm of, of cooling these giant servers from which it's done is absolutely immense. There are cities in America where they've actually banned any new servers because they're just using up all the electricity that there is in that city. Mm. Nobody talks about this. Yeah, so here goes. It's worse than we thought. Yes, I mean, I, look, I, th- I think, um, I mean, there, there will be there will be a change in our politics. We are there is a generation coming of age. Anybody under twenty seven or so, their political awakening was not with anti-apartheid or racism or anti-austerity or anything like that. Their political awakening was absolutely with climate change and the environment. Uh, what's it called? Pe- People and Planet was a very powerful group in universities. Actually, a lot of the kind of the sort of later protests um, that, 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 that greeted austerity emerged out of activism that came out of environmental activism in our university. So th- these, are, these are people who, as they grow older, as they leave their 20s into their 30s, turn into the people who are running the world. This is right at the heart of their political identities. But, you know, we've got, we've got, we've got a, a, decade, a decade of rubbish until then. On that happy note, thank you to Libby, Rachel and Hugo for this morning's podcast. It's the last regular one of the year. There'll be two special podcasts coming out over the festive season, one looking back at 2015 and one looking ahead to 2016. Go to thetimes.co.uk for more information. If you want to sign up to Redbox, it's thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box, forward slash sign up, all one word, and subscribe via iTunes. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.